welcome to Big Bones, Thick Skin, the podcast that talks to marginalized actors about their experiences in the entertainment industry. I'm your host, Claire Alpern. This podcast is near and dear to my heart because I am a plus-size actress and have had to navigate a very specific journey in the acting world. Here, I'll be holding space and having conversations with other plus-size actors, as well as those who identify as trans, Black, Asian American, queer, gender non-conforming, tall, short, old, young, and more, to tell their stories and share their feelings of being mis- or underrepresented in entertainment. We want it to change. We want to see everyone represented, but we need to talk about it first. And this is the first step in doing so. Welcome to Big Bones, Big Skin. It's our responsibility to acknowledge that the land where we live and produce is occupied land. Chicago, Illinois is the territory of the Potawatomi, the Kickapoo, the Miami, and the Peoria peoples. We pay our respects to elders, both past and present. My first guest is, to put it mildly, the shit. (laughs) She is also the first person I wanted to interview for this podcast, and I still can't believe I got her. She and I met in New York about 15 years ago, where she was playing the role of Helen in the off-Broadway show Fat Pig. The show and the playwright are controversial, understandably, but no one can argue that my guest brought the house down. It was also the first time I saw a woman of size in a leading role, a powerful leading role. And our guest took such good and kind care of her character that she won a Theater World Award for Outstanding Off-Broadway Debut, as well as nominations for both the Lucille Lortel Award and an Outer Critics Circle Award. Since then, she's continued to make her mark on stage, both on and off Broadway, and has also lit up the small screen in Rescue Me, Mr. Robot, all of the Law & Order franchises, girl, 30 Rock, and Boardwalk Empire. In films, she's worked with such little-known directors as Spike Lee, Martin Scorsese, and Craig Zobel, just to name a few. I fucking love this woman, (laughs) and I'm so thrilled to talk to her here. Please listen to my convo with the incomparable Ashley Atkinson. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It really, if I can blow blow a little sunshine up your ass right now. Um, I love that. Okay, good. Um, You were one of the ones when I first kind of said, to myself, okay, this, this is something you're going to do. You were one of the first people I thought of and would be like, Oh my God, I hope I get to talk to Ashley. It's true. It's true. And can I say why? First of all, again, hear more sunshine. I hope you're, I hope you're having a nice enema, um, a nice sunshine enema. Uh, Yes. Um, no, I'm, (laughs) is the best kind of enema um you like seriously you're fucking rocking it and 
granted, I don't know what's going on in your head. I don't know what's going on in your life. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I mean, despite, you know, insurrectionism and all this sort of messed up stuff as a nation, I myself as an individual am feeling pretty good about stuff. Awesome. Um, You know, I need a job, but other than that, like, yeah, that's fine. Well, We'll I don't, I don't think you're, yeah, it's, I don't have any concerns that you're not going to get a job when things are working again. And that's that's exactly why, because you are so wonderfully fully yourself um, in the best possible ways. And, and I mean, that really, it does inspire me because it's, you know, it's it's hard. It's, it's hard, especially as a, a, you know, whatever we want to call ourselves, I'm trying to reclaim the word fat because i've spent oh, yeah. my entire okay good girl yeah, um yeah, yeah. but i've spent my entire life like shrinking away from that and and scared of that word it's uh, it's just so wonderful because that's like you've claimed that you own it it hasn't stopped you the way i've kind of let it stop me and you're so bloody brilliant like and talented and it's just it's awesome that's so sweet you don't seem you don't seem stopped you know what i mean you seem like you're doing tons of stuff yeah yeah but but i know that (laughs) i know the conversations that have been going on in my head for my whole life and of course uh, you know and and so much of it centers around my body and how it looks and how it's i think it's seen and how other people have told me it's been seen um so I have bought into it a lot uh, quicker and uh, deeper than I would like. Um, and that's what this is about. Yeah. It's like to kind of be like, ah, not, not, I'm not going to fight it anymore. I'm going to embrace it. And I want to talk to other people that when I'm not feeling it, I can look to and be like, Jesus Christ, like they're doing it. They're doing it and they're gorgeous and they're fucking badass and all of that. Okay. I'm going to stop it now. And the reason why like you popped into my mind is all of those things, but it was also like, I want to know what's going on in her head because you've had a really kick ass. Well, good, because, I mean, who's is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah um, it's very messy. Yeah. Good, good. And I want to hear about the mess because you've had a really, a, a great career tra- trajectory from my point of view. You know, I don't see all the inner workings, but um, man, you've just done so much phenomenal shit and you're not, and you're still going. And, and, you know, I'm just super, super psyched. I hope you. I'm still going. It's really hard to know at this point, you know, it's sort of like, I, I, think i'm still going i don't um why wouldn't you i guess we'll find out sooner or later i mean i i am sort of to the point of like am i going to start taking bartending gigs again but Mm. uh, i don't think that um i loved bartending let's be honest like i i it scratches an itch in me of socialization especially in moments like this i don't know if it's particularly safe to do that um so i'm waiting until uh it would become like a financial necessity, but I don't yeah. think, hopefully I'll get something uh, right at the edge of the line. I, my friend, Deborah Jo Rupp always talks about how she got, uh, she played my mom in a couple things and um, ugh, she's amazing. I love her I would so always much. talk about how like, how there was like a fire and she um, was putting her mother, uh, she was uh, 
getting her mother assistance in a facility, like all this sort of stuff, you know, um, all of these things. Uh, the day that that 70s show called um, to tell her that she booked. Nope. Oh and these God. stories, it's crazy. I And I find myself a little obsessed with these stories and it's probably not... There's a scarcity model there, right? Yeah. That I'm not sure is helpful, right? Um, Hillary Swank got fired from Beverly Hills 90210. I think that was the one she was on or Melrose Place. Was it Melrose? I don't know. She got fired from one of those shows. Yeah. And then I guess she was standing in line to get some medication. Um, this may be apocryphal, but I've read it, so I'm hoping it's true. And why do I hope it's true? Like, I'd love to <laughs> examine that sometime. Uh, Hillary Swank was in line. And had just gotten turned down. Her health insurance had just turned her down mm. to pay for this drug. So the drug was going to be like $800, which is also like such a, yeah. Ridiculous. Anyway, and her mother called her to let her know that she had been nominated for an Academy Award for Boys Don't Cry. Are you serious? Yeah, and she was really in a space of like, this is never happening for me again. Like she'd gotten fired, you know? Like, I think that must be, that has not happened to me yeah. yet. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it will. I'm sure, I think it happens all the time. And it's not about like being a bad person or being a bad actor. It's about just not being right for the thing, you mm -hmm. know? Um, I'm sure if I work long enough, that will happen to me probably multiple times, but um, <laughs> it's just never, I mean, I just want to assume that because like actors I really love and who I respect have all had stories like that about being fired off of something for yeah. this, that, or the other, you know, as a matter of fact, if I get to, you know, 70 and I haven't been fired, I'm going to be like, well, I clearly have just been like, too much, too much of a get along girl. You know what I mean? Like I need to start you need to make waves, pushing back on stuff a little more. Yeah. You got to get it under your belt. Otherwise you're not a uh, legitimate actor clearly. Right. Well, I mean, but also, and this ties into sort of what we're talking about uh, today. Like there, there was just a series of roles. The industry was in a very different place when I started. Claire, when, when you and I first met and it's like the things I turned down or like wouldn't audition for are one thing, you know, like some of those were just like the most fat phobic things, you know? Um, and, uh, but even some of the things I took yeah, were not great. Yeah. You know, and I feel now responsible for having been part of putting those images out into the world. You know, and I do feel a responsibility for that. Are you able to go into a little more detail about that? Yeah. I mean, the things that, I mean, I'll talk first about the things that I, I turned down or didn't audition for. Um, there was a character who I knew the show was all going to be about a weight loss journey for her. And I wasn't really interested mm -hmm. in that. Mm -hmm. Um and then there's stuff like, you know, early in my career, there was stuff like uh, being like a face at mm -hmm. the door, mm -hmm. you know, like just being in my body and my face and being like in a blind date montage where it's like, uh, you know, they open the door and the girl says something and then the door gets shut. 
Mm-hmm. And like, I was supposed to be like fourth or fifth in that montage. And it was like, I was, oh, I opened the door and was just seen. And I didn't even have to say anything. And then the door was shut. <gasps> and I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing that. They're going to have to find somebody else for that. Um, oh, God. There was also much more recently within the past five years, uh, there was um, an SNL alum who was or maybe he was on the show this time. I don't know. Anyway, there was an actor who was doing a pilot and I don't think it went. I I never heard it. I don't know. There's so much TV. It's hard to know what goes <laughs> and what doesn't. But like, right. I, I never heard of this show happening. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a whole thing where he got re- the character got really drunk and made out with a, a fat uh, the word was sloppy, I think, that Ew. they kept using. Um, a fat, sloppy girl in the bathroom of the bar who had, like, a hideous full-back tattoo. And basically, there was a whole thing about how he hooked up with her and then realized that the whole bar knew that he had hooked up with her. Mm. And it was, he was not embarrassed about his behavior. He was about, he was embarrassed about who Mm -hmm. the physical appearance of the person he did it with. Mm -hmm. So like, I was like, I'm not, I'm not really interested. Good for you. That's so awesome. I'm just not, I mean, but but then there are things that I did, you know, Um, some of them I realized that we, maybe i don't know i don't know it's hard to know right like there's part of me that's like well maybe we wouldn't have gotten to here yeah yeah if we didn't have those you know because at least at least there was a fat girl on television right okay so you mean like industry-wide wise yeah yes yeah like in terms of you know i played roles in 2004 2005 a series of like romantic pairings Mm -hmm. where like the relationship was really great or the sex was really great, but they were embarrassed to introduce me to their friends. Right. And that was a really pervasive storyline at the time. Right. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And part of me is like, if that is so pervasive, is that reality or is that something that the industry is perpetuating? Right. But like I had a hard time even nailing down four fat actresses that had been able to be love interests on television, television, movies, anywhere. Right. Especially younger, like fat women in their twenties and thirties mm-hmm. allowed to be love interests for established characters, mm-hmm. you know, was like not a thing mm-hmm. so much. Um, there were a couple of, of exceptions, but I mean, the exceptions sort of prove the rule, you know? Yeah. And so I feel a lot of, I mean, I'm grateful to the people who gave me those jobs because I have a career and I get to pick and choose mm-hmm. what I do um, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I get to say no to things because I can live in the hope that something else is going to come along. Right. You know, right. and I think everybody does does jobs that they're not psyched about. Yeah. You're yeah. just psyched about getting the job. Because right. Because 
when you're first starting out, you know? Um, but I do sort of, I, I also feel like I can't separate some of those things mm. from the experiences I had around it. Mm. I had some great experiences. I had some people that were entirely lovely, fantastic scene partners. Right. Um, and then I had people that weren't super great, mm-hmm. you know, and who themselves were not comfortable with the actual physical reality of me. Wow. And is that something that they, how did you know? How did you know that they were not comfortable with that? Um, well, I can tell you that for one of them, um, we had to have a fight choreographer come in and um, rehearse a love scene mm. to like sort of work out the dynamics of it. Um, there were times when um, there was a show where I was told that I could not initiate touches or kisses. Really? Because there was um, a concern that the lead male actor would not respond appropriately. Wow. And there was a real fear. And I appreciate, you know, the, the, it's so messed up, but I do understand that all of this was coming out of a space of like trying to protect my character. Mm -hmm. They were very, there were huge concerns about this girl looking desperate. Oh, really? Okay. And so the idea was that if I was too touchy Mm -hmm. or got too affectionate, that that would translate to clingy, Mm. especially if there was a possibility that that behavior was not going to be reciprocated by the, by the actor I'm supposed to be in a relationship with. Right. Let me gather my thoughts here. Oh, and to add to that, this was not said in front of the actor. Oh, it was not. No. Okay. Okay. No, this was a conversation, one of many conversations mm-hmm. where I was taken aside. Oh, so he clearly had talked to them. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. He certainly, he, I will say that he certainly didn't have any opportunity to refute it. Yeah. I don't, that said, I don't think, I don't think they were making that up. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know. Seems to me though that like I don't know I was young and they didn't really need to explain to me right <laughs> decision it was you know right. what I mean it was just right. like they were protecting the character and protecting my work yeah and so that was the conversation that was had I wonder if they also had a conversation with him about like hey listen this is your job you are an actor you're supposed to be in a relationship therefore you need to reciprocate because it's it's that's the whole point you're in a relationship it's a great question because that to me that would be that would be who should be pulled aside to be like hey listen you know ashley's giving you this yeah because yeah. that's the relationship and you are not stepping up to it what well what- there, there's also the added dynamic of i was straight out of drama school i had you know i had not done much work and he was famous So there was that kind of barrier. Yeah. 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 So there's that stuff. And, you know, at the time, um, it was all sort of, uh, I was really thrilled and exhilarated to be doing the work. 
Mm-hmm. And honestly, at that time, what we were doing felt really groundbreaking. And yes, it didn't bear any resemblance to the actual romantic relationship I was in at the time mm-hmm. with a conventionally sized, right, attractive person. Right. And it was a little confusing to be on several things where I was like, so this is the perception of what my relationship is. Yeah. But none of this reflects any of my lived experience whatsoever. Right. Um, And there was this strange disconnect in that way. Of course. What did you do with that information? Part of me... um, you know, some things had more leeway than others. Mm-hmm. There was a character uh, that I went in for and the the description was she's frumpy. She's uh, she's, you know, in her 30s. Well, you know, I uh, this was for Rescue Me, actually. Um, and I think you can talk about this. The casting notice was sort of like, uh, you know, frumpy, overweight, whatever. Um they're synonymous, clearly. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they were they were like, uh, but they end up together. And I was like, well, I made the executive decision <laughs> to be like, well, I'm going to look as hot as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like if fat is the issue that I am beginning to understand that it is mm-hmm. or perceived to be. The issue with all these people and listen like i always knew that fat phobia existed like i i had been fat for a long time right yeah know? this wasn't your first rodeo with that no no i guess um it was interesting to me that i had been dealing with fat phobia from individuals mm-hmm. not systemic enshrined industry-wide institutionalized fat phobia right Right. Um, Accepted fat phobia. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, So, yeah. So uh, going in, I was like, well, I'm going to look as hot as I can, you know, like um, I'm really excited about this. And I did, you know, cut down to here and the whole thing and Mm -hmm. went in and I ended up doing that show and having a fantastic time on it. I then heard later from a friend of mine. Oh, man. God love friends. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Where's this going? She said she knew someone involved with that first episode and with the casting process. Mm -hmm. She said, yeah, you know, it's funny because I've heard you say that about how you dress really hot, but it actually came down to you and this fat girl that was really hot and they decided to go with the better actor and they really thought that was like a thing. And I was like, great. Oh. <laughs> did you did you go out and Google this other actor to see like just how she was? I mean, that's the thing is I I'm not sure who that actor I mean, I know lots of really, really good looking fat girls. You know what I mean? Like a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was just sort of like, oh, okay. Yeah. What is that? That's cool. Yeah. I don't even know. 
Yeah. Right? Is that a compliment? Is that I an know. insult? Is- but I also kind of love that we're all patting ourselves on the back, right? Like, I'm like, I changed the version <laughs> of this character. And they're like, no, we actually went with the frumpy girl. Yeah. Because <laughs> she was the better actor. <laughs> To have these these jobs very early taught me a great deal. Mm-hmm. And it taught me that um, not everyone's going to be your friend. Not everybody's going to get behind your narrative. Mm. Um, you find the people on each project that are. Right. And you enlist them and you enroll them. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes collaborative. Mm-hmm. Um, Immediately, my mind went to uh, a costumer, mm. my friend, my friend Eden, that I worked on on a show called One Dollar With in mm-hmm. uh, Pittsburgh, <sighs> where my character is uh, a factory worker, a steel worker. Right. Eden was so great about finding the things for Terry that created a person. Mm. and not a joke of a person. Right. And she was shopping, you know, uh, she was shopping uh, at discount stores and, you know, um, Costco's and stuff like that Mm. for shirts and jeans and things like that. But she was like, no, I believe that Terry has a style, you know, and we were able to create this whole character together. Mm. You ready? I'm going to talk more trash. Uh, <laughs> uh, I did a job mm-hmm. where clothes were very cool for everybody, like really neat clothes. I sent all my sizes. They were like, you know, we're, we need to do a fitting. I was very excited to have booked this job. Mm-hmm. They're like, we need to do a fitting. Um, and so I sent over my um, my sizes because I was uh, a series regular on another show at the time. And I was like, I have all my sizes, like super up-to-date sizes, all of it, you know? And, um, you know, as a, as a series regular on a TV show, it, you feel a little, because you're working with people every day, yeah. right? You develop these relationships. So you can kind of be like, hey, can I get a copy of my sizes so that I can just send it over to this other thing? Um, and they're like, sure, because people are lovely in yeah. the industry. Um, so I sent over the exact sizes. And then they were like, okay, let's do a fitting. And so it was like a Saturday because I was working on this other show. And so I came in on a Saturday. They came in there on a Saturday. And I came in and they had racks of vintage size like 14, mm. which is like a 8, 10. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they might have even had as high as a vintage size 18, which is what I was wearing at the time. Right. But it was a vintage Vintage. size 18. Yeah. So it's a 10. Um, And I fit none of it. Mm. And I tried on a lot of it. And then they had one thing, one dress that they had built for me. And I tried it on and they were like, okay, okay. And the designer was like, well, you're going to have to come back. And I was like, okay. 
but I felt really demoralized about like the 12th thing, 12th beautiful item you try on. Mm -hmm. And you're just hoping please fit. Yeah. Yeah. You start to, to be like, well, I see what they're going for and I'm not the one that fits into these clothes. Mm. And this is my fault. Yeah. What's the common denominator here? Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. My body. Uh, These clothes are beautiful. These clothes have existed forever. It's my body that's unwieldy. It's my body that's not doing the thing. Mm -hmm. So I leave and I'm very low and I go to my neighborhood friends. I have a... uh, I feel really lucky to have um, lucked into a neighborhood when I met my boyfriend and we moved in together. He was already in um, a part of South Brooklyn that I love. And it was, uh, and now it has changed, of course, because that was 11 years ago. Um, And gentrification is so swift. Um, And I will own my own part in that uh, because it was full of artists and people that, you know, people living gig life and people who didn't have a lot of money or trust funds or anything like that, carrying them, people who were making art. And so I'm hanging out with my girlfriends um, at our local bar and they are pumping me up. They're furious. First of all, one of them is a costume assistant. She's furious about it. Mm -hmm. So angry. And then one of my other friends was like, so what's going to happen when you go back? And I was like, well, they may just have me try on more stuff or maybe they'll build me something else. And she said, I love this so much. I'm, I'm forever going to be grateful to this friend. Um, she said, here's what you do. <laughs> if they make you try on more stuff, I want you to pick the flimsiest, most expensive looking vintage piece <laughs> on the rack. And then she said, and I want you to hulk out in it. <laughs> and I was like, that's genius. That is genius. <laughs> Just rip it up. That's brilliant. Yeah. So I actually ended up being <laughs> my character. You see my character over the course of, I think, three days, but I wear one outfit and they just changed the jewelry. Uh, Yep. How long ago was this? Not that long. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Not that long. Um, anyway, uh, I'll say it was in the last five years. How about that? Just to interject, how do you compartmentalize that feeling and still do your job when you... It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, it's also hard... Well, sometimes you're just like, uh, you find the people Mm -hmm. you like Mm -hmm. and you focus on them. Um, Sometimes you can use it. Sometimes if you're feeling frustrated or over it all, depending on what you're doing, that's a useful feeling. Yeah. Um, Which was certainly something in those roles that I was talking about early on in my career where I was in romantic entanglements invariably i had to get upset i had to whatever you know um i did i've done a lot of a fair amount of crying on film and tv mm-hmm. um because <laughs> it's always a tragic story when you have a fat girl uh, i mean you know yeah yeah um yeah if you're 
I was just about to be like, you know, if you're a day player, you can be jolly, but you know, if you're, if you're in more than three episodes, odds are you're going to cry at some point. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, can, we can't have them thinking it's okay to be that way. Um, anyway, uh, no, you just find your friends and you find your, and, and to be honest, most of the jobs, the overwhelming amount of jobs that I've done have been really, really lovely. Like fantastic, supported and material that I really liked and that felt meaningful. And also um, there's this weird thing where I'd say over half of the jobs I've had had nothing to do with my size at all. Mm -hmm. That's impressive. That's really impressive. Which is great. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, like, I, I'm really lucky. I've done about, I think, 90 films and TV shows wow. uh, since I started in 2004. Mm-hmm. And then probably, I'd say, about 20 to 25 plays, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there just aren't that many fat girls. Nobody's writing that much about fat girls. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, like my very first job on Law and Order was not about a fat girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had two that were, and then Spike Lee cast me in Inside Man, which was not a fat girl role. Mm-hmm. Black Klansman was also not. Black Klansman, Connie Kendrickson yeah. was supposed to be in the script, was written as a Better Homes and Gardens Donna Reed type. Really? Uh-huh. Damn. Oh yeah, she's supposed to be super put together. Yeah. Like like crisp, you know? Wow. Yeah. And you got I know. but you got called in for that. Yeah, and well I mean Spike and I had worked together before. Right. So he and he had called me in for it's so funny uh, spike is so lovely in that he is he reuses actors he finds actors he likes i've been very lucky to get to know uh several directors that in that way like i work with craig zobel a fair amount um uh, who i love i work with spike like that um spike uh reuses people so i went in for a character in she's got to have it the mm. tv show okay and and my friend kim who was in inside man with me mm-hmm. who could not other than us being white could not be like more different we are both white white with boobs and that's like <laughs> the only thing we have in common um she uh ended up booking that like we both got pinned and then she got that one and then inside i mean uh black Klansman cast less than a year later so uh kim coleman who cast for spike is great yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah wow yeah because we shot uh we shot black Klansman while she's gotta have it was in between season one and season two because we had a rap party and they and all the she's got to have it folks showed up because they were just about to I think they were in pre-production at that wow. point. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, Spike is wonderful and that character had nothing to do with my size. Mm-mm. You know, she's just cop. 
Yeah. It's just a cock. I saw that recently. And we I watched it. Yeah. How did it hold up? It held up so fucking well. I was like He's so good. He it was really so good. So incredibly well done. Like just the level of detail. He's so smart. So yeah, it was so good. It was so good. He does this thing that I love in really pivotal scenes where he's got very good actors. And I know he's probably done this other times that I, on films that I wasn't in, but Mm -hmm. the only ones I know are the ones that I was in, which Mm -hmm. is that when he's got two like master actors working opposite each other on a phone or whatever, Mm -hmm. he sets up two sets with two crews and the phone lines are live. So they're actually both ends are being filmed and both ends are being played. Like for example, in inside man, the conversations between Denzel and Clive Owen, where Clive Owen is in the bank vault and Denzel's in the mobile command center with us. Yeah. Those are all live phone lines. Those are, that's two crews using two cameras in two different sets on the soundstage shooting. Um, same thing happens uh, in that beautiful scene in Black Klansman where JD and Topher mm-hmm. are on the phone together and JD is telling the story about, about uh, I think the kid's name is Biscuit or something like that. Like basically he's telling the story about uh, his, his white, his sort of like, clan persona right right in right. his clan persona right jd is talking about growing up next door to uh another child who was black and about how he then didn't play with that child anymore and i don't know if it was explicit but the the thing that i always got out of that was that jd's character ron stallworth is telling a story of his experience from the other side of the story Right. As the person who did that to him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so that whole scene is all live phone lines as well. And that's a lot of work, but it's. Oh, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. As JD said, he's a, he's a player's coach. Mm. He like really, he really gets down with the actors, you know, and I've been really lucky to work with a lot of players coaches. This is the weird thing about having a fat body. Mm. Uh, in the, one, one of the weird things about having a fat body in this industry is sometimes people assume everything you're doing is comedic, even yep. when you're not trying to be. Mm-hmm. Like there is, um, we, I think uh, a lot of people put a lot of characteristics on a fat body, um, which include ineptitude, which include uh, an intelligence, you know. Uh, I remember somebody in um, uh, in a discussion about Black Klansmen uh, called Connie Kendrickson near illiterate, mm. and I was like, "She reads the paper." Where did you get that from? I was like, the first thing she does is hand them a article she clipped from the paper, like. I was like, she's a racist piece of trash, but she's not illiterate. Like, that's interesting that that's what 
you got. Yeah. You know, um, and there was a lot in that film that was um, <laughs> where I mean, there were some things that I was I was sort of um, allowing Connie to be an idiot. Um, I mean, because she is an idiot, but yeah. there were certainly things that I was that I was not playing for comedy that I felt were real terrifying stakes that I'm not sure everybody else believed were real to, you know what I mean? That, uh, that I think like when JD tackles me and we're fighting, I felt like those stakes were really high. And then I turn around when the cops come in and I do the worst thing and accuse him of rape. And, uh, and I felt like those were very serious stakes. And I do think that there, I know that there are people out there in the world who thought that was funny, really? which is in, which is, in, it's, it's inconceivable to me that that is the perception, but I guess. Did you hear from people that thought that was funny? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, uh, people are really lovely about that film um and what i haven't gotten which is that i what i was afraid was going to happen was like somebody who was um uh white supremacist being you know like yeah girl you know about it which has not been any of my experience because i don't hang out with garbage um but uh but yeah people that i meet you know they're like you were so funny in that movie you were hilarious in that movie and I'm like <laughs> well you can thank Spike and Barry the editor because that was not my intention I played that straight as an arrow you know and I can see I mean I can I can distance myself enough from parts of it to be like yeah okay so I that's that's pretty funny but I certainly couldn't play it funny right right you know that was not anything that could no enter what I was trying to do you know Unless, unless anyway. you were directed to do so. Right. But fat bodies are funny. Mm-hmm. When did you, when did you first start feeling like your body was, was a part of the equation with acting? Oh, from very young. And I don't think it was, it was necessarily about being fat, but just realizing that there was some combination of being fat and being tall and having a very low voice mm-hmm. that like right off the bat, I started acting at um, uh, the children's theater where I grew up. And it was like right off the bat, there were ways that I was not perceived as a child or was not able to be perceived as a child the way kids that were my age were able to be perceived as children. You know, like uh, there were some very, very classically cute kids who were all small, you know? And so that was sort of the perception. And I think that part of me was like, well, I, I always knew I had a deep voice. I always knew that my voice was different. Um, like from the time I, like first day of school, like kindergarten, figure that out. Oh yeah, I came home and was like, why do I talk like a boy? 
my mom was like, you don't talk like a boy, which is how gendered, you know, also a mess. Um, and I was like, no, no, I do. All the girls talk like this and I talk like this. And she loves that story. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, so that was very clear. And then it was very clear that there was something they were looking for from children that I was not able to satisfy at 10. But so, yeah, like, I don't remember a time when it wasn't something. Mm-hmm. When, 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 to be completely honest, I think for a very long time, all of my visions of being an adult actor, that that I think I know. That from, you know, 10 to, God, probably halfway through professional acting school. So from like 10 to 23, Mm -hmm. I was like, I will lose the weight. Yep. And then I will get to play the parts I want to play. I will lose the weight and then I can be Lady Macbeth. I will lose the weight and then I can be, you know, the queen. I can be, I can be all of these roles. I can be a fighter. I can be a romantic lead because I'm, I'm going to get thin. Yeah. I'm going to get thin and I'm going to fix my teeth and I'm going to be pretty. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to get these jobs, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I'm not sure what made me realize, um, at some point when I was in the industry, I was like, oh, right. First of all, even if I lost the weight, those parts aren't, aren't my, the weight is not what's keeping me from getting those parts. It's just not, you know, like I was never interested in being a professionally pretty person. That is also very, very very hard that requires a lot it's a lot and it's a lot of maintenance and it's a lot of time and it's a lot of sacrifice pressure and and pressure and and i'm not casting aspersions on any of those people that is not something that interested me and so i finally had to i finally realized like okay this isn't happening right this is not going to happen you're not right. gonna. You're not gonna. You're never gonna be a thin, beautiful person, in the eyes of the industry. Like it's just not a thing. So you can get rid of that. <laughs> and honestly, even with the stories that I've sort of told and the in- inequities, I don't know that I would want to be. I find those stories far less interesting, and I find that it. To use a phrase my husband loves to say, uh, it weeds out the lightweights in a Mm. weird way. In terms of, I end up working with people who prioritize the things that I find important. And a lot of times when I say no, it's not because I wish ill will for a project. It's because I get a whiff that our priorities are not the same and that maybe that I am going to feel crummy on that set or on that stage 
making that project, you know? And so, uh, so it's a lot more, it's maybe a little less high minded and a little more self preserving, uh, because I do believe that if you're and this sounds a little woo woo, but it's true. It's, uh, and I believe this about a lot of things with our body that if you have enough times where you tell your body that going to set is a bad thing and going on stage is a bad thing, your body is going to internalize that and it's going to make it all bad. Mm. Just like if you, um, I, I coach, uh, young actors now and uh because our industry's uh insane um and part of it is that you know you don't if you put a fake thing where a real thing should go like um an action or you know or if you fake cry instead of like accessing the action that will make you cry for real if you put the fake thing there when the real thing shows up it sees there's something fake there and it leaves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No one has ever, I, as far as I know, I certainly, you know, I can't say no one. I certainly, in 16 years of acting, have never faked my way into a real moment. Ever. Mm. Wow. I've only been able to stay open and vulnerable and whatever moment comes is what comes. Right. You know, and I think that if I had to do enough work where I felt devalued and really, really crappy all the time, that um, my body would start defending itself from that. And that's not a good place to be. You don't want to be in a place where you can't be vulnerable. Right. Your mind would do the same thing. And mm-hmm. then absolutely something that you love. Yeah. So it doesn't make you feel all the things that you are doing it for. Yeah. So, so there's, you know, um, there's that. What, how did you know that you wanted to act? Mm. <laughs> um, I got like that first, I don't know if it's serotonin or dopamine, but I got that first big, I guess it's serotonin. I got that first big serotonin dump in first grade. um, We were doing uh, one of those plays in your books, you know, like they have like a little play, like our reading books in first grade. Yeah. Yeah. There was a little play about a little playlet, like, like probably like eight pages about uh, unicorns that were in a race and um, there was the good, you know, righteous, lovely unicorn that everybody wanted to play. And then there was like the bad villain unicorn that got all the good lines. (laughs) And I remember being like, I like this one. (laughs) Can I be this one? And they were like, yeah, sure, sure. And I remember we did it in front of parents, like on parents day or whatever. And we did it in front of parents. And I said my first line and they laughed. And I was like, <gasps> what is this? Give me this. Give it to me. Um, yeah. 
And I was like, oh, I can't get enough of this feeling, you know? Yeah. And then I remember having that same thing in an acting class where I like cried for the first time, like, you know, did like the thing and everybody was like, wow, wow. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I did that. <laughs> I did that. That and like you're high when you have a good cry after it. You're just like, Whoo. it does something crazy to your body. And yeah, yeah. crazy chemicals. Yeah. Really- it's wild. And you went to Neighborhood Playhouse. I did. I went to Hendricks College. Well, I went to Barnard for a year and a half, and it was not good. And then... um, Go for uh, theater. uh, No, I had decided around like 16, 17 that being an actor was not an ethical choice. And so I was going to be a journalist. And then... um, And so I went to school there because I was going to be a journalist. Um, and then, uh, I got depressed and I didn't know how to layer and it was like winters were really bad. And it was like sort of my first, um, go round with depression, like an actual depression. And so like, I stopped going to class for probably a month and I didn't, you know, I just like couldn't get my shit together basically. So, um, halfway through my sophomore year, they were like, you, we're not kicking you out. You just need to like go figure this out and then come back. And then I just didn't. Uh, when I figured it out, I figured out that maybe that wasn't the best place for me. And I ended up going to Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, which is where Mary Steenburgen went. It's where Natalie Canterday went. It's, it's uh, like just really some really great actors came out of that program. Um, and I just, it changed my life. And then they recommended that I go to the Neighborhood Playhouse and yeah. I did. And what, why, why did they recognize I did? Specifically? Uh, it was the home of the Meisner technique. Um, you know, it was Sandy Meisner's theater. And a guy that I adored and absolutely worshiped, my friend Tad, graduated and went a year before me and went there and was in his first year when I was in my senior year at Hendrix and was like, this is incredible. This is it. Like, this is it. And I remember he told me there was a moment. We had a moment in a scene where there was something going on that was foregrounded. And I had just, like, gotten in a fight uh, with the character of of my friend Heidi that played my mom. And I've gone back, and he's my best friend. And and we're sort of, like, across the table from each other, like a cocktail table. Like, literally just having this entirely wordless conversation with our faces that we just sort of like came up with. And he was like, you remember that feeling when we always did that thing? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, they teach you how to find it and how to keep it. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah. He's like, it's like a whole technique centered around that thing, Mm. that moment. And keeping that alive from that moment to the next moment, to the next moment, to the next moment, to the next moment. He was like, that connection that you and I felt, that was not just like a one-off. That's what it should be all the time. And it just, my, it just, I couldn't, I didn't even apply anywhere else, Claire. That was the only place I applied to go. I was like, this is it. 
Yeah, and that was sort of where I learned. Uh, part of that was like, no, 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 you're enough. There's work for you. There's work for you. Um, Cynthia Nixon, ooh, who was another amazing female director that I worked with. I remember we did a show where there was singing in it. There were like there was like a pre-show that we sang, and I mean it was me and a bunch of singers, and I'm not really a singer. Um, and it was me and Mario Cantone and Jerry Dixon and Malcolm Getz and Matt McGrath. Oh so my it's God! Those four men and me, and then a young uh, LA actor named Francisco Pryor Garat, but he is not in the singing portion. Um, so it's just the five of us. Like Malcolm Getz isn't even singing. He's just playing the piano. Like it's crazy. So I was really nervous about it. Right. And I remember Cynthia, go figure, Cynthia, who is a phenomenal director, by the way, Cynthia said to me, listen, I'm going to tell you what Mary Testa told me. <laughs> and I was like, I'm listening. Yes. And she said, it's musical theater. There's room for Audrey McDonald, and there's room for Rex Harrison, and there is room for Mary Testa, and there is room for me, and there is room for you. do you who or what motivates you like is there anyone or anything that you look to for inspiration motivation any of that stuff um you know when i was at hendrix i i came in and i was doing theater but i wasn't a theater major and i I was still thinking I was going to write or, uh, or be a journalist or something. And I remember it was like a lightning bolt to the skull the day where I, where I was like, cause all my friends are theater majors. And I was like, what you guys are doing? It doesn't seem like work. It mm. seems so fun. You're like making hats while I'm writing a 12 page essay. And this is ridiculous. This feels patently unfair um, and i just remember having a late night conversation you know one in millions with my friends and one of them was like well you know i just i think a life in the service of artists a good life mm. and i was like yeah dog and then i changed my major yeah i just went and changed my major um you know there's that old uh, i'm sure you've heard it there's an old martha graham quote Mm. that uh that i love so much that begins there is a vitality a life force mm -hmm. um and and one of the crucial things in it is that there is a there is a vitality a life force that is translated through you into action there is a form of self-expression that only you have and that is why you can never be compared to other modes of expression and it and it says if you die before you are able to express these things, the world will never have them. And it is not your job to judge 
your output or how it compares or weighs next to other forms of expression, that's not your job. There are other people who make their living judging your expression. You just keep doing it. And then like uh, there's an Andy Warhol who I share a birthday with actually. Andy Warhol said the same thing far more succinctly where it was like make art. And then while people are judging that art, just make more art. Like don't wait to hear what they have to say. Just make more. Yeah, I find that really inspirational. And then I just think about like how excited I would get every time I saw a fat person on television growing up that was allowed to do something good or cool you know, and how liberating that was for me and, and hoping that to some degree I can be that for other people. But then some of it's not weight specific at all. You know, some of it is, is just, I love doing this. I love doing it. And I can't, it's the only thing I might be good at, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and I love doing it. And I love the collaboration of it. I got a couple more questions for you. One is uh, pertaining specifically to fat phobia and the way fat people are portrayed in entertainment um, and, and who we are. What? So now that we know, like now that we're talking about this stuff, you know, and and it's and I I do believe that it's part of the diversity initiative that is clearly much bigger than this, and clearly one hundred percent. Yeah. Um. But if we're gonna tackle all of those things, we we should definitely add this to the to the roster. Um. What? How, so now that we know this stuff, what should we do about it? You know, what would you like? What would you tell someone? Uh. I think a lot of it, there's a lot that the industry can do, Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also a lot that we as individuals can do, which is uh, normalizing seeing fat bodies. Um, My friend Substantia does uh, a project called the Adipositivity Project, um, which is basically uh, nudes, Mm. uh, often, often sort of classically romantically shot nudes of fat people lovingly depicted bulges and rolls and you know and it's amazing how a steady diet so to speak of consuming more fat images leads to a greater empathy for all bodies you know, it's a sort uh, and part of it is the sort of thing where um, there needs to be enough fat people on television that and not of like the narrowly prescribed fat people like, you know, the fat working class sitcom character with the very thin wife is, mm-hmm. yeah, no. you know, we don't just need four of those and we're done. Um I, it's, it's the same thing, um, with sort of, uh, different, different, um, mobilities and, and different levels of, um, uh, of sort of normalizing 
all of the various wondrous ways that we can be human, you know? Um, like, for example, you know, the, there was always, uh, when, when there was, uh, I guess what I should call it, a black picture, when there was a film in the theaters with, um, with a black, mostly black cast, a black protagonist, the success or failure of that individual picture was held up as um, indicative of the success or failure of all potential films that black people could star in and, and lead and helm. Um, and I think that hopefully we are moving past those modalities, right? I mean, I feel like, you know, Shrill was on TV and people were like, well, Shrill was great, so we can have fat female protagonists as long as they're A.D. Bryant. <laughs> and then Dietland was on with my friend Joy Nash, which is a fantastic show, and then got canceled because they did not want to see their fat protagonist in uh, in sort of trying to um, overthrow the boundaries of the beauty industry, you know, to throw off the yoke of the beauty industry is, yeah, not anything that was in interest to them, I guess. I thought it was fascinating. I thought that show was great. Um, so, yeah, like, uh, as soon as we are able to tell stories um, that don't have to be a stand-in for everyone's story, mm. that would be great. Um, we need more fat writers. We need more fat directors. Uh, my friend Morgan Gould, who is a fantastic director and writer, absolutely fantastic, she was doing a... Um, a workshop or a playwriting. I think she had a fellowship. It was a fellowship uh, at maybe playwrights. And they were like, what, um, what, what have you always wanted to see on stage that you've never gotten to see on stage? And she was like, two fat women. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And she's right. And yeah. so she wrote a play that was basically, uh, it was three fat sisters, but one of them is not fat. And like <laughs> realizes like halfway through, she's like, I think I like that. <laughs> it's just really funny. It's hilarious. And so Nicole Speezy and O and I got to play two fat sisters and it was so, so fun. And it was really true because, like, there was a moment when we looked around the rehearsal room and it was, like, me mm -hmm. and Nicole and Morgan mm -hmm. who are all, like, three fat women. And I was, like, I don't remember mm -mm. another time where I've been in a rehearsal space where there were three fat women there. Like, ever. No, you're absolutely right. You know, so it's that sort of thing um, that excites me. And so I think we've got to uh, generate the material. And we also have to, like, be reaching down, even if we feel like we're not in a position 
of success. Like people are like, oh, you know, you know, uh, I have been asked like, when will you feel successful? And some days I'm like, I feel pretty successful. And, but I know that I will, that success is a trap of a concept, right? Because every level of success you attain, there's another level until you're like, you know, uh, somebody that gets referred to by one name in people's households, you know? So, uh, I have been working hard to try that's that's I'm couching it weirdly. I'm trying to remember and actively reach uh, down to younger people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And younger fat people, uh, and and younger people in the industry, people with less opportunity in the industry, um, people in marginalized groups in the industry, and uh, take an active part. and enroll in their careers because I think they have plenty of people telling them they can't do it. And they will. Yeah. I mean, people told me I couldn't, I, you know, uh, a few years ago, I remember I was bartending because it was, I think it was just during a slow period. I also just love bartending. Um, and I remember a girl, my, I was on a Fox show that had just gotten canceled and not aired. And I was, feeling the burn of it and this girl was like so so you only bartend here one night a week like what are you doing and i was like well i'm an actor and she goes oh honey no and i didn't argue with her and i was like right like if i use other people's perception of success as a metric i'm always right. gonna lose right well you wouldn't be doing it anymore no no, no. Um, so I think it's important to encourage younger people um, and to actively uh, do the work with them to push their stories forward. Right. Because that's how we're going to get something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I remember uh, Deborah Joe Rupp and my friend Cynthia Mace. Uh, and I were having dinner one time and I said something about a director that was younger than me. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, sweetie, you want to keep working at some point, they're all going to be younger than you. And I was like, Oh, that's yeah. I guess that's true. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. And it was just like a switch flip, you know? And it's like, you've got to start seeking out these people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The one who, who you have a vested interest in the way that their work can expand a world. Mm-hmm. For sure. You know, my friend Christopher Oscar Pena is one of those people like, uh, you know, uh, Morgan is one of those people. Yeah. Jeremy O'Harris is one mm-hmm. of those people, mm-hmm. you know, like there, there's a lot of folks whose work will change the parameters of our industry and I want to champion them and work with them as much as I can. And then they help me. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. I, uh, my friend, Jen, Jen Bosworth Ramirez was my first interview for this. And she's an amazing 
a, a writer and actor and she is from Chicago, but she lives in LA now and she's writing. She's kind of like focusing on writing, which is amazing. Great. Yeah. Right. And she's just like, I need to clear the path for the people behind us. Yep. My friend, Laura Jackman has that philosophy. I did Laura's play at, uh, at long wharf called January joiner, which was a weight loss horror comedy that took place at a fat camp. That sounds Um, like my life. It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. The more I think about the people behind us, following behind us, the more I definitely get inspired to be like, okay, now we know enough. Right. Let's like, Yeah. yeah, let's change the lens a little bit. Yeah. And they can. And, and, and they, they come with their own friends and their own communities and their own support groups and watching them do things because no one, no one was convincing enough when they told them they couldn't (laughs) is really exhilarating and exciting. Have you ever thought of directing? Oh, I love directing. I have directed. Yep. Yep. I've directed for theater though. And I'm really interested in directing for TV. Mm. Um, I would really like to do that. I, uh, I was lucky enough when I did Mr. Robot, which was a really great experience, um, uh, to work with one of the most really, I mean, I've been so lucky to work with brilliant directors, but like Sam Esmail is a genius. And because I was a series regular, and like I said, you could sometimes ask things when you're a series regular on a show. Um, I asked, I was like, so can I, like the days I don't work, can I just come in and um, sit in Video Village and like watch and watch the work happen? Yeah. And I made that request um, to one of the producers. And then Sam's assistant wrote me back and was like, so I hear you're going to shadow Sam. So um, on Thursday, that's probably a good day. So like a handful of days, I got to go in and just like go where Sam went and like watch him make his decisions and watch how he and Todd, the DP, were making these choices and how they were it was, I mean, talk about like an incredible education. Um, being friends with Craig Zobel has been really great because I've, uh, when I worked with him on One Dollar, it was our second time working together, and I got to stick around a little more and do the same thing, come to set and just be like, so. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, and try and puzzle that stuff out, which is something to give credit where credit is due, which is something I never thought about doing until I went to a 92nd Street Y event where Judd Apatow was talking. And somebody said, So, you know, you've helped start the careers of so many young actors. Who is still going that is the biggest surprise to you? And he's like, Well, I'm not going to say it was a surprise. I don't, I don't really feel comfortable. I, I don't, none of them really surprised me. I think as a matter of fact, I think they should all be working all the time. He's like, but I will tell you 
that in the moment I remember hiring James Franco mm. and then realizing as the days went on that when James Franco didn't work, he was still coming to set. Oh, really? And he was just watching. Huh. And he was watching how it works. And I was like, you can do that. You can do that? And so then I asked, and you can, it turns out. If you're like, you know, a regular or heavy recurring, like, and the people are nice that you're working with, sometimes they'll let you just come in and learn the process a little, you know. It was great. And I mean, yes, that is that is privilege in and of itself, like the amount of access that I have um, is its own form of privilege. So I then try to like turn around and tell everyone, like tell everyone I can who, who want it. Jesus, just think about the amount of money you would have had to spend like going to film school or something just oh, to yeah. learn what you oh, probably yeah. I mean, I learned. probably still should have gotten to film school, but you know, like, uh, yeah, I'm learning. I'm learning. And I am very interested in directing. And I'm a writer, you know, I've written uh, with my writing partner, I've written four plays. Uh, I have a couple pilots. I have a couple film scripts. Really? Um, yeah, I've, I've got some back pocket things for if anybody's ever like, hey, what do you want to do next? Is that something? So if you my next question was going to be what uh, how do you I mean, it sounds like a job interview and I hate that. But seriously, like what how, where do you see yourself? pandemic aside let's just assume the pandemic finally leaves us oh i don't where know. do you see yourself in five I, years? I don't know what i don't know want? like i could not have well then let me rephrase it what have you not oh, done that you want i to want do? to uh, i would love to make one of these films uh i would love to direct mm -hmm. more i would love to be uh, a drama protagonist uh I would love to be a demon um, or, or uh, you know, some sort of um, a leading antagonist. Uh, I really enjoyed doing that in Robot. It was so fun playing playing a bad, you know, but I'd like to be the big bad, you know. Yeah. Um, I'd also just like a job that I can stretch out in one of the great things about tv is that you get enough time uh to really develop someone i've uh i've gotten to be really fun complicated considered characters in other people's stories but i'd love to uh to have the story you know i think that'd be really cool for it to have nothing to do with my size, you know, would be also really nice. You are amazing. I am really, 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 really so glad that you did this. I, I am too. And there's, I mean, there's so much more to talk about. I hope that we can continue this conversation someday in person. Like uh, the the one thing that I would say, if I can just like wrap up one thing is that like, this is, it's been, it's very useful to tease out fatness as it pertains to us in the industry. However, mm -hmm. I would be entirely remiss 
mm-hmm. if I wouldn't, if I don't mention that our liberation is tied up in all manner of people's liberation. And that until all different kinds of stories are being shown. Like when I play a white supremacist in, in black clan, the centering of black people in their own stories, I am not doing a service because my liberation is tied up in the liberation of black people to tell their own stories. And part of that is centering black stories and black narratives and black people's lived experiences, which because, because of entrenched uh, white supremacy requires then white people to play white supremacists because white supremacists because those people exist and are real and are a great threat to life and well-being and to pretend that i just felt like i needed to explicitly say that to pretend that fatness is not in is is separate and different and not entrenched into into um, uh, white supremacy and ableism and and the patriarchy and all of these notions um, these harmful harmful aspects of our society um, is to be disingenuous and I think we have to remember that all forms of liberation are intersect and uh, when one rises, we all rise. I wanted to leave you with the Martha Graham quote that Ashley referenced. It's particularly pertinent now. There is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action, and there is only one of you in all time. This expression is unique, and if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, not how it compares with other expression. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep open and aware directly to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. No artist is pleased. There is no satisfaction whatever at any time. There is only a queer, divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Big Bones, Thick Skin. Huge thanks to Ashley Atkinson for sharing herself with us, Eric Backus for creating the awesome 80s style music, Meredith Montgomery for their graphic art skills in creating the artwork, and Amelia Driscoll with Summit Podcasting for their help with editing. Help us out and subscribe for more honest, thought-provoking, and occasionally funny conversations with me and my guests. And thanks for listening. 